thriving, healthy cultures, vibrant traditions still in daily practice, sharing songs, language, and showcasing the beautiful regalia of the first people of Alaska is at the heart of celebration. The biannual gathering of the indigenous people of Southeast Alaska is a time of connecting with relatives, friends, and visitors for days of joyous dancing and rejoicing in the pride and strength that comes from knowing who you are and where you come from. We're honoring the cultures of the Linket, Haida, and Tsimshian people today on a special edition of Talk of Alaska, live from the KTOO studios on Linket Ani in Juneau. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend, and I'm grateful to our friends at KTOO for letting us host Talk of Alaska from their studios. As Celebration 2022 prepares to kick off tomorrow, I know this is a very busy time for everyone. Being grounded means different things based on your family heritage and local culture and traditions but it often means feeling connected to the past and present at the same time and drawing strength from those connections that can help people lead healthy, happy lives in the future, rich in cultural stability. How has celebration aided in the efforts of the native people of Alaska's Southeast region to keep their culture not just alive, but thriving? What is the history of this every other year gathering and how significant is this year's celebration after the disruption and loss that was caused by the pandemic? Here today to help us all learn about the importance of celebration and what it helps highlight and promote is Rosita World, the president of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. Also with us is Hukne Lance Twitchell. He's an associate professor of Alaska Native Languages at the University of Alaska Southeast. Welcome and please, both of you, if you'd like to introduce yourselves and your language, I'd love to have you do that. <laughs> Shangu Kredi Ayahat, Kaudli Yai Hit Ayahat, Klukahadi Yadi Dachunk Ayahat. My Tlingit names are Yadeklatsak and Kahani. I'm an eagle from the Thunderbird clan and from the House Lord from the Sun in Klakwan. And I'm very proud to be a child of Hune's clan. Thank you very much, Rosita. Ya achtlayin and nachtekina chasatitsu. Ka ach ishasoe yupik chasami. Ka guantan chatu yatasuasa. Achwe ka guantan yadi achat. Kadaklawedi dachan. My name is Rene. I'm Shukach Adi. Uh, I said thank you, daughter. So we use kinship terms uh, based on clan relationships a lot. Uh, I am from Chilkoot. Uh, born in Skagway, a child of the Kaguantan, because they named my father, who was Yupik and Sami, and we're also a Haida. 
All right, so quite a rich blend mm -hmm. in your heritage too. So interesting, the reference to daughter, the clan reference. Um, I'd love to drill down a little bit there, um, but first let me do a little bit of the mechanics of the program. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there we are hosting today's program from KTO and Juno, and we have an audience in attendance. Thank you so much for being here. You can still join us by phone from across the state. Are you planning to be here for celebration? Have you participated in past celebration events? What questions do you have for our expert guests about the significance of coming together? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. And we're streaming live to Alaska Public Media's Facebook page, also KTOO's Facebook page, I would imagine. Anyway, we're streaming, so you'll find us online. And you can drop questions or comments there as well. Rosita, please start us off with the background of celebration. This is the 40th anniversary, and the theme this year is celebrating 10,000 years of cultural survival. What was the discussion when you decided on this theme? Well, the theme, first of all, is selected by our board of trustees. And, uh, and I'm telling you, uh, it's, it's really hard to find a theme because there's so many things that we want to acknowledge, that we want to celebrate, that we want to commemorate. And so trying to find the theme is, is really hard for the board of trustees. And actually, I don't know how many meetings we had before we finally came up with the one. You would have thought that it would have been just really simple and easy. And in the end, when we said, 10,000 years of cultural survival, that was it. You know, everybody said, absolutely. Because, you know, uh, we, you know we've been here for 10,000 years, and there's absolutely no doubt, you know, we've lived in our homeland for more than 10,000 years. I want to tell you about something later on, but yeah, for 10,000 years. And during those 10,000 years, we've had, you know, a lot of different ad adversities. And, I mean, we've gone through climate change before. Uh, we've had glacial advances, glacial retreats that has caused our, our villages to have to move. And then, uh, of course, during the historic period, uh, when um, uh, and that, that, that part of our history is not a, a happy history because our cultures were suppressed, our languages were suppressed, our art was suppressed. And it, so we went through that period where our culture had to go underground. And I recall as a young child, you know, uh, participating in ceremonies, and then we'd hear a plane come, and we'd have to disperse like we weren't, you know, uh, having the ceremony, which was prohibited by mostly by the missionaries and discouraged by the civil authorities. So, um, and then the pandemic, you know, the pandemic came. And, um, but we knew that we were going to survive that. And uh, I, I know our people suffered uh, highly from it, but we still had the strong belief that we were going to survive. And sure enough, here we are, you know, 10,001 year later, and we're still here and, and prospering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I, I know I, I listened to the Juno Afternoon episode with you recently, talking about that much longer time here yes. and um, uh, working on some of those discoveries. That's very exciting and I hope we have a chance to talk about that a little yeah. more. When you were talking about having to put things away, it reminded me of a story I heard, such a similar story in so many places. Uh, an elder in Chivac, when I was there many years ago, Leo Moses was talking about the same thing, how they would get their drums out when the missionaries would leave 
and they always knew when the the priest was coming back because he had more dogs in his team than anyone else so they could spot him from a long way and then they'd hide things again and I remember thinking what a terrible thing that someone who comes to your community with the idea of helping you is actually harming you in in a in such a dramatic and terrible fashion so more than 10,000 years of cultural survival and I want us to talk about thriving beyond surviving but talk a little more, Rosita, about what celebration means for you personally when you think about coming well, together. Uh, it's really exciting. I mean, first, of course, you know, as SHI president, it means a very different thing. But for me personally, it's knowing that my, my son, my grandchildren, my relatives from all the villages, uh, my sister from California, they're all coming in to Juno for celebration. And so it's just wonderful to have, you know, those uh, renewal of family connections and friendships, you know, that I have throughout, you know, the, the region. It's just, you know, it's just wonderful to have that gathering together with friends and family. Kutne, mm -hmm. Lance, talk a little about what celebration means for you. Yeah, well, going through a pandemic, uh, one of the things that really hurt a lot of our people was the, not being able to get together. And I remember when we first sort of went into kind of lockdown phase one, I started thinking to myself and sharing with some of my colleagues and friends, I said, we'll come out of this with fewer speakers than we go in. And we can't talk to some of them. And to know some of our eldest speakers, uh, we had some who, who had their kids or grandkids would hook them up to uh, our Zoom calls and stuff and, and visit with us. But there are some who, uh, who probably passed away without having people to talk to. And so thinking of that and then not being able to get together, uh, I was thinking of it a lot this last week when I had, had the opportunity to dance three different times in public and uh, my legs were not ready for it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, you know, so, uh, but thinking of just sort of the idea of coming back together and, and, and starting to see faces and starting to, uh, within our culture, it's really important what happens in front of the eyes of the people. And so when you get the people together to gather, and this, this is really important because I remember when I was learning Shlinget and one of my great uncles, Gachtlein, Paul Jackson, he'd, he'd tell me something. And then I'd say, well, he talked to me in Shlinget one time and I said, which is, I don't know. And he kind of bawled me out. He says, well, do you not know or do you not understand? I said, well, I don't understand. He says, well, then you need to say, I said, okay. And then I started, I picked up my paper and I started writing down. He says, don't write it down. He says, you have to remember. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. You know, and so uh, when I left, I wrote it down right away because I have to sort of, that's just how I function. But if you think about it, there was a storyteller named Catherine Atla who said, if you always need to write things down, you're not exercising that part of your brain that our ancestors relied upon. Everything was remembered. So much stuff, so many names, so many stories, so many songs. And so as we come back together again, it's so amazing to think about seeing each other, dancing with each other, hearing each other's stories, and just you know, give someone a hug. Like human beings, I think, require 
quite a bit of face-to-face -face contact and physical contact. And to sort of start to go back towards that in a safe and, and a conscious way of, of what we've gone through is really exciting. And to hear new songs and to say, some of these kids, they might be four years old, they've never seen this before. And so our, for our pandemic babies, we want to show them uh, just how incredible this moment can be. Mm -hmm. um, I was just reading something the other day about how transformative it was when, you know, we started writing things down and how it's changed everything from a time that people did trust their memory and pass things on orally to now where there's that fear of I've got to get it down or I won't remember it. And, uh, it's such a different way of doing things and thinking about things. Rosita, as I mentioned earlier, 10,000 years of survival, but thriving is clearly the goal. When you look at the efforts at culture and language revitalization, what really stands out to you as making progress in that regard? Well, um, it's our children. It's our children, uh, when you see them and hear them uh, dancing and singing and, you know, being very proud of who they are. To me, that's, I think, the most rewarding thing. But the other thing I want to uh, also mention is that, you know, part of our goal at SHI is to pro promote cross-cultural understanding. And so we want to share our culture. We want people to learn about our culture. And um, because we think we have some really good things in our culture. I mean, if we have survived 10,000 years, uh, we must have some values that are worthwhile. So in our thinking that if we're going to survive as a culture, we're going to have to have an outside community that also has an appreciation of our culture rather than suppressing our culture and misunderstanding our culture. So I like to tell the story about our, one of our first Fridays and um, where we have, you know, artists, you know, selling their, their, um, their arts. And then we have dancing in the clan house. And uh, a group of us staff were sitting in the back. And here comes this little boy, little glade cowboy, white boy, dancing like that. Uh, just, oh, it was so wonderful to see that. And I called our staff together afterwards, and I said, we're making progress. We're making progress. Did you see that little boy dancing and just being wanting to be part of our culture? And to me, that's exciting and rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a wonderful example. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Every other year, celebration has gone on since 1982 until the pandemic. How did you adapt during that time of both great anxiety and fear and loss, but also still wanting to keep some continuity going. Right. It was, it was a difficult period, or it has been a difficult period for us. Not only for us, I know our whole society as a whole suffered. But for us, there were some very specific things that, um, that made it, you know, I think doubly hard for us. First of all, we're a tribal society, we're a communal society. So that means, you know, that we're very group oriented. And then we also have a series of ceremonies that we are required or we have done, you know, at different life events. And so for us, you know, not to be able to, to have ceremonies, for instance, you know, when our clan leader, Akingaste, uh, David Katzik, passed, you know, for us not to be able to have that ceremony and, and go through, 
you know, the rituals that we do. It was really hard. And, and, and uh, it's not only just the, the practice itself, but it's the coming together of, our, in our society, we're divided in half, eagles and ravens. And so we have to have that social and spiritual balance of our people coming together for healing and also for, you know, promoting harmony within our societies. And so not to be able to practice those ceremonies was difficult. It was hard for some of our people to move through some of you know, the sorrow that they were feeling in losing family members because those, you know, those ceremonies really helpful. And I mean, they have that, you know, the emotional, psychological effects. And again, you know, these are the things that are good in our society that we want people to know about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we went through a hard time. During that time, though, you, one of the things that you did, I believe, in this time of absence was to put all of the past celebrations online. Yes. yes. I was so happy to hear about that because yes. my grandchildren uh, from Sitka danced in past celebrations. And to think that I can now go and watch that again is, is wonderful. So that's a good thing for everyone to know mm -hmm. that if they want to see past celebration events, they're all on the Sea Alaska Heritage Center's YouTube channel. Right. Mm -hmm. That's great. 1-800-478-8255 is the number to call if you're just joining us. We're talking about Celebration 2022, and our guests today are Rosita Wuerl, the president of the Sea Alaska Heritage Center, and Hootenay Lance Twitchell, who is a professor of language at the University of Alaska Southeast. You can join us if you'd like. Also in the audience, we have a mic here. If anyone wants to come up at any time and ask a question, you're certainly welcome to do so. 1-800-478-8255 or email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. So, Hukne, how has interest changed in learning the language since you first started teaching? Well, I think there's always been interest. I think sometimes there's been hesitation for a lot of our people uh, thinking about suppression and thinking about a number of other things. I was on a panel about a month ago of Alaska Native writers, and uh, our keynote was the wonderful Ernestine Hayes. And somebody on the panel said, if you were born before 1978, which I was, I was like, oh, I was, um, barely. And then they said, uh, you were older than Native American religious freedom. And I kind of never thought of it like that. Mm. And so I had documented stories of our elders and some of the things that they went through when they were just little kids. So some of them first day of school. Uh, and to think about the violence of language suppression and to think about the violence of a cultural genocide. Uh, her first day of school, she was told by her older siblings not to speak the language when she went to school. And um, and she did, like you, you just can't tell a five-year-old, like tell a five-year-old, go somewhere for seven hours and don't speak English, right? Like that would be very difficult for them. And I think as soon as they see, they see other kids, all the kids spoke Tlingit. She was, she passed away, her name was Shekshani March Dudson. She was incredible. Uh, I think she'd be probably about 97, 98 years old if she were alive today. And uh, so she just saw a kid and she was just speaking in Tlingit and she got called up in front of the class. And the teacher, who she said was a very large person, uh, grabbed her by the hair, lifted her off the ground, and shook her violently, threatening to hit her if she did it again. 
And so she walked back, you know, and then dropped her. And she walked back to her desk. And then she picked up her stuff and left. And she just went home crying. Her hair was, you know, pulled way out. And so I think about that and the stories that they've shared. And then I think about the, the shame and the loss and, and so much stuff that just sort of tends to compile. But then we sort of say, well, what if we made everything completely accessible? So our goal was to really try and be accessible. So at the university, we partnered with Sealaska Heritage Institute and we partnered with Outer Coast and Sitka to say, okay, let's have a class and let's make the whole thing free and let's see what happens. And we had 600 people sign up, which was really amazing, because at the time, I'd say we probably had 50 speakers left. And so I said, well, folks, we have 50 speakers, but we have 600 people who said they'd, they'd love to do it. And so it was teaching online and teaching to, at one point, I think there was 150 people in a single class. And it was really wild to think about. And so we started to, to sort of investigate, say, well, what if the whole thing what if there's a way to make the whole thing free? Why should people have to pay to learn their language when they themselves went through generations of systemic oppression and um, denial of being themselves? And I, I go back to the words of Walter Sobolov, who I used to love hearing talk at celebration. And he used to say, if you know who you are, you don't harm yourself and just really trying to get back to these core values that we find in our language that are really hard to translate, that are really hard to connect to without our language. And so we, we sort of, we did a lot of brainstorming and we said, well, there's this zero credit option where people can basically audit a language class. And we found a way to say, that's free. So if anybody wants to learn Tlingit, Haida, or Simshian in the fall, uh, there's a free option for that where you don't have to pay money. And we're going to have to figure out like, how to do this statewide. Because I think with the critical endangerment, like if you added up all the speakers of Clinkett, Haida, and Simshian, uh, you might not be over 100 total. And so looking at that and looking at the future to say, how do we create like real shift? How do we create like a different reality? And I think a big part of it is access. So I think the interest has always been there. But I think there's a lot of complications that keep people from coming in the door. Well, I know that <clears throat> um, the folks here at KTOO have been taking language classes and other non-native people have as well. Many years ago in the 90s, I worked for a tribal radio station in northern Wisconsin the, at, on the Lakutere Ojibwe Reservation, WOJB. And at that time, National Native News, my good friend Nellie War was in charge of it then, and she was collecting Native Word of the Day from around the country. And I was so excited to record many of the tribes in that region. And I went to our general manager of the station and said, we should you know, start putting language on air. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. She said, white people will steal our language if we do that. And I stopped asking because it wasn't my place, but I, you know, I think that thinking has changed, but do you have some concerns about some sort of theft or appropriation at times? There are some examples out there, I know, in Lakota country. Yeah, uh, well, I guess I think of uh, Betty White dancing and being a Tlingit person, and she said Tlingit words, and uh, when I first saw it, I thought, I 
think I don't like this, but I think it's kind of cool. It's like I couldn't quite decide, and you know, and Betty White has achieved like cultural immortality, so I don't want to. I don't want to mess with her. But at the same time, like coming back to what Rosita was saying, when we, when you used to walk through this community, Juno, and speak Tlingit, people would throw rocks at you and spit on you, like white people would. Like they would just do that on a regular basis, based on the elders that we talked to, and, and then we talked to them about the reasons why the language got into such trouble. And so to see, like it's going to take more than just us. So I think of another elder, Teotu Ish Herman Davis, who stood up one time. He said, "We didn't do this to ourselves, so why should it just be us who are trying to figure out what to do?" So we really enjoy when people come to the language and figure out and try and figure out where they. What's their role, and, and what, what do they do, and how do they, how do they communicate? And it creates a really wonderful opportunity for us to say, hey, there's a really neat puzzle to figure out, which is not a racist puzzle to figure out how do we deal with this racism, but how do we deal with people sharing humanity and knowledge? And I come back to Kingisti, David Katzik, who used to tell everybody, think it the way you're a human being, and to say, like, this is something we can all share. And it's not a loss thing. We're not trying to protect stuff from loss. We're trying to protect stuff from vanishing. And I think the key to that is making it a language of daily use. All right. And if I could add, yes, please. I think it's uh, really important to acknowledge that our elders, you know, themselves made the statement to open up the box of knowledge. They wanted to open up our, our traditional culture and make it, you know, bring it out into the open. And they didn't say, open it up just for the clinkets or open it up just for the Haidas. They said, open up the box of knowledge. And, and I know, you know, uh, people like Austin Hammond, you know, when one of our, we, we were having uh, a ceremony up in Haines and somebody was videotaping and he's, and, and, and you know, another person ran over and said, stop, stop. And, and Austin, my grandfather said, no, 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 this is for the children. This is for the children. So we want our culture out in the open. We want people to, to you know, appreciate it and, and learn from you know, 10,000 years of knowledge. So Absolutely. yeah, that I think it's, for us it's very different that bringing things out into the open and having it validated by the opposite side, it, that's our way of showing ownership. So, we bring it out in the public, but we say this, you know, our ceremonial object belongs to this clan, but we bring it out in the open. It's validated by the opposite side that we own it, but it's still sharing so that people could look at it and appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, the fact that celebration kicks off on Wednesday. Um, and the, there will be a dedication of the new, that's tomorrow, Wednesday, the new arts campus in downtown Juneau. So Rosita, tell us about that and the cultural significance of having this dedicated space for the practice of traditional arts. Well, uh, let me just kind of backtrack a little bit. You know, um, about, it was about 25 years ago that our, our uh, board of trustees said, let's make language revitalization our highest priority. And, and so we did, and, and, and I think we're on a good path, you know, on a good path, I think, thanks to people like Hune, the University of Alaska, supporting uh, that zero credit free, you know, they, I love what they said, 
uh, Native people shouldn't have to pay for their language, you know, that was taken away from them. So I applaud you for pushing that at UAS. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? I got the <laughs> dedication of the new oh, okay. the significance so the of it. The second one, and I, um, we had, I said, let's have a juried art show. And, and uh, that was something new, and people said, oh, you'll never make it. And I said, oh, yes, we will. And we had a juried art show. But Robert Davidson said, and Robert Davidson is Haida, and in my mind, he is the foremost Northwest Coast artist. And um, he, he juried that show, and he, afterwards he said, Rosita, our, our art is deteriorating. And I was hysterical. I mean, uh, uh, art is not just art to us. It, it has a social and cultural meaning as well as that aesthetic appreciation. And Northwest Coast art is several thousand years old. And it is unique in the world of art. It, you know, basic form line makes it very distinctive. And, but it also is a reflection of our society. It's a symbolic of our culture. And, and it's, it has these cultural meanings for us. It has spiritual dimensions. And so we were very hysterical when you know, he said that. And I said, I want to send everybody down to IIA, Santa Fe. And he said, no. You have to start here in the villages, wherever our people are. That's where you need to start uh, your, our, our work. So we started form line classes throughout our region. Every, you know, every art form, whether it's skin sewing or, 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 or wood uh, sculptures, it, it's based on form line. So we had form line classes you know, all over our, 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 our region and even in Anchorage and Seattle, where a lot of our people are. And, um, but we, were, we, we, needed, we needed classrooms. We needed space. And we were meeting anywhere and everywhere that we could. And so we decided that we needed an arts facility. And um, one of the things that we had learned during the pandemic, and this maybe this is one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, is that we learned about virtual programming. And this virtual programming, like you know, like you've mentioned, it expanded our reach. And so we said, let's have a facility where we could have uh, in-person classes, but also uh, teach remotely. And so our arts campus, you know, is designed, you know, to do that. And because it's so vital to our culture, we said that we need this art facility. And it is, I like to say, the second phase of making Juneau the Northwest Coast Arts Capital as the engine for the rest of the region. And we'll talk about the future phase when we, after we take a quick break, we're going to go to a break for just a moment. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Rosita Whirl at Huchne, Lance Twitchell, as we talk about Celebration 2022 that kicks off tomorrow as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. On June 11th, Alaska will have the first round of a special election to fill the open seat in Congress. Every Alaskan voter will receive a ballot in the mail. In the June 11th primary, you can only vote for one person. The ranking happens later. Pick your favorite candidate, sign, and get a friend to sign as well. Then mail it back. And remember that June 11th is the Pick One primary. This message sponsored by Alaskans for Better Elections. 
right, welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are live from the studios in KTOO in Juneau. And we have a live audience, as you can hear in the background. <laughs> 1-800-478-8255 is the number to call if you'd like to join us as well. 1-800-478-8255. Or you can email questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. The lead dance group this year for Celebration 2022 is the Shatquan group from Wrangell. And I was at my longtime good friend Dixie Hutchinson's house last evening. She invited me over for dinner, and I was, it was such an honor to be there. Dixie is from Wrangell, but she lives here now. And I listened, and as about, oh, 20 to 23 people were there in her home, they discussed their songs and all the work that goes into representing their Wrangell community and how seriously they were taking this responsibility. And they were also very joyful about it, and there was a lot of pride, you could tell. So let's hear a bit of their song that they practiced last night. The Wrangell Shutquan people have been singing the Loon song as an entrance song for more than 125 years. Let's hear that. a little bit in the background uh, it was just amazing to be in the room. Rosita, it was really clear last night that people were so proud and excited that they're the lead group and they took the preparation really seriously. Talk about the songs and the stories that they tell. Are, are there a variety of different reasons for them? Are some for honoring people, some for teaching? Are there some that are just for pure joy and for being together? Well, well, first of all, songs are owned by clans. Uh, they are real property and owned by clans. But they also tell a story. And, um, and we have different kinds of songs. And I guess the, the ones, the fun ones, are the love songs. Where we, the love songs where we sing to our clan grandchildren, our clan children. They, they mean they're not members of our clan but from, they're from the opposite side. And so there are what we call our love songs where we're singing to them. And uh, I mean, I always, one of them I love is uh, walk towards your raven, dukuti anade, you know? And so these, I mean, uh, I don't think people, <laughs> when you saw a singing and dancing that were, these are real love songs, you know, that we're singing, you know, to the opposite side, you know? So we do have those. And then, of course, we have our, our ceremonial ones, that, the, spirit, the spirit songs, where we uh, call forth the spirits that a clan has an affiliation with. So we have those. And, and uh, you'll be seeing some of that at the arts campus when we give thanks you know, to the spirit of the trees for allowing us to use the trees, uh, the cedar trees, to make the arts campus building. So we will be doing uh, a spirit dance there. And then, of course, we have our morning songs. And our morning songs that are sung a year after uh, someone passes uh, at a ceremony. We'll have a ku'ich, and they'll, they'll be doing their, their sorrow songs. But right after the sorrow songs are done, 
that's the last cry. It's called the last cry. And um, so it's, the la it's a year after someone has passed. And so this is, we cry. I mean, this, when you hear the sorrow songs, you can, it really evokes, you know, brings out that sorrow. But when you're finished with it, that is the last cry. And then you move on to happy times, and then you'll be singing happy songs. So um, I think we have songs, you know, for all parts of our lives, all parts of our activities. So uh, during, this, during the uh, celebration, uh, you probably won't be singing any of the, uh, the ceremonial songs unless, you know, you, are, you go to an actual ceremony like we will be doing at, uh, at the Arts Campus opening. We will be uh, doing the spirit songs, and then we'll also do another uh, song when we uh, dedicate the Sea Alaska uh, Cultural Values Totem Pole. And we'll be singing a song there uh, around, uh, we'll be having the fire bowl ceremony where we call the spirits of our ancestors. Or in this case, they'll be calling the spirits of the uh, deceased uh, Sea Alaska directors and CEOs. So, yeah, the full range. Fantastic. 1-800-478-8255 um, is the number to call if you'd like to join our conversations today. 1-800-478-8255. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. And we do have a caller on the line. Willie is in Chickaloon. Hi, Willie. Hello. Did you have a question? Uh, no, I'd just like to say hello to Rosita. And all of the uh, chalk na and yes na people down there and cha ye gugweki slingit yohatangi aha arch and I would like to say that is uh, I understand a little bit of slingit from our schooling and. Uh, I haven't seen Rosita for I don't know how many years, and I don't Hi, know if she even remembers me. Hi. Goodness, cheesh. Goodness, cheesh. Yes, yes. <laughs> for you too, goodness, cheesh. Thanks for putting this on, and uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful time down there. I wish I was there. Well, thank you, Willie, so much for the call. Um, it's great to hear from folks across the state. <clears throat> Again, if you'd like to join our conversation, 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. You can join us just as Willie did from Chickaloon. Um, Rosita, continuing on just a little bit about the Shutquan folks from Wrangell, they talked about their hot ooh, yeah, yes. the special items that they would have with them. Talk a little about these sacred items, clan hats, blankets, are they brought out only for certain dances, or what, what is the protocol for when they come uh, out? Well, in the past, uh, we would wear maybe our ot maybe when we were greeting visitors. And, you know, there are a lot of accounts of, of explorers coming and then meeting our people dressed up in their regalia or their ot and Atu are, are sacred objects. They are owned by clans. And they were the, the crest designs on our Atu or our ceremonial regalia and objects, our clan hats, uh, our, our staffs, and other things that you, you'll see. Um, they were purchased with the life of one of our ancestors. And uh, when that, that occurs, uh, it that there's a visual representation of that of this encounter between a human being and a supernatural being, 
and then there's this, a life that is lost or a, loss, a life that is taken. And then it goes through the ceremonial process and where it is uh, after the, it, it, the visual representation is put on an object, it's brought into a ceremony, and there is this ceremonial presentation of this, of this object. And again, you have the opposite side there witnessing what is going on. So with the ceremonial presentation of this object, the ceremonial object, it is then transformed into what we call atu, a clan-owned or a clan sacred objects. And this object, our atu, is sacred in that it has spiritual dimensions. It has the spiritual dimension of the uh, supernatural being that, were, that was encountered, that gave rise to that, that visual representation. And then also the spirits of our ancestors who used or, or owned that object. So it's very sacred to us. So when we bring that out into the open, and I, I will tell you that we are very fortunate, you know, that uh, communities will bring out their ancient atu. I mean, I mean, it's just beautiful to see some of the um, some of the older pieces. I mean, it, they're 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 culturally significant, but also the art is fantastic. And um, our master artists will always say, study the old pieces, learn from the masters. So you have you know the multi-dimensional uh, uh, values of that of that atu. So when you bring that out into the open, you know, it's first, it's a great honor to us, but it also has to be met by an opposite uh, clan atu. So there again, you maintain the social and the spiritual balance. Mm, so Fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, we talked a little earlier about the pandemic and, and the loss and disruption. It certainly, as you're well aware, hit indigenous people particularly hard. A third of the deaths were in the indigenous community. In January, Hootenay, you and others on the Alaska Native Language Preservation and Advisory Council wrote a letter at the beginning of your biannual report. And it said in part, the loss of indigenous elders to the COVID-19 pandemic has been deeply troubling, not only for the severe damage to native communities, but also to our language revitalization efforts. In the Kodiak Archipelago, for example, from early 2020 to early 2022, half of the first language speakers of Kodiak Lutik passed away, leaving no speakers of the Northern Archipelago dialect and only approximately 17 of the Southern dialect. That's just staggering. What do you think can and should be done to stop this loss? And is there any recording of the Northern dialect that you're aware of or some way of, of bringing it back so it can be taught again? Yeah, I mean, about four years ago, I think, we convinced the legislature and the governor at the time that to declare a crisis, to declare a linguistic emergency uh, for Alaska. And I would say not an awful lot has happened since then, uh, especially in terms of uh, legislative and, and you know, the leadership of Alaska, the governor, the legislature. And so, the behind the scenes work that we sort of talk about with folks who are advocating for specific changes, we start to think about, well, what can really be done? And, and I think what has to happen is a reform of education. 
And so part of that education is going to affect everybody. Like, for example, what if four years from now, to graduate high school, you had to take one semester of an Alaska Native language? Doesn't matter who you are. And I think that's part of a future that I could envision that is doing something. Because you can't have a system that was designed to destroy indigenous languages and expect those languages to survive without completely altering that system. So I think that's one way. And then the other way would be to drastically improve the chances that you're going to create new speakers, create new teachers, and create educational systems. And so for each of these languages, uh, there are 23 languages that were in Alaska. Uh, probably three of them, maybe four, are not currently being spoken as a day-to-day -day means of communication. Uh, we don't like the word extinct. I think that that's a bad word to use. Uh, but there are some languages that have gone silent. And so as we sort of look at that, we start to think, how do we make sure that that doesn't happen to us? Then how do we make sure that we're doing everything we can for all the languages in Alaska? So we're going to launch, and if everything goes right in the fall, we're going to be launching a Master of Arts in teaching, uh, pushing it through the curricular process so that you could get a a degree to teach Alaska Native languages. And so that's going to be through UAS. And we're going to put that through in the fall. And if everything lines up, it will be available in the fall of 2023. And so then we're working with the state of Alaska. And the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development in the state of Alaska is very receptive to these conversations. When we say, hey, if someone teaches an Alaska Native language, they should be a fully licensed teacher. They should have curricular say of what goes on in a school. They should have the pay and the benefits uh, that a teacher has. And uh, the folks that we talk to there say, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so that's the other thing is to create that pathway to say fully licensed certified teachers. Then we want to put a little bit of pressure on the state of Alaska to say, uh, and by the state, I mean everybody who's here, everybody, to say there should be an Alaska Native language teacher in every school in Alaska. And then there should be, and so, but we're going to, have to create some jobs here. We're also going to, have to create some things. Because I was on a reservation down south, and I was talking about languages, and someone came up to me and said, Well, we tried to get this elder to come in and teach the language, but they wanted to get paid. And they said, If they really valued it, wouldn't they just do it? And I said, Well, pull your history teacher into your office and say, You know what, next year we're going to have you keep teaching history like this, we're not going to pay you. But if you really care about history, you'll just do this. And I said, that you would feel ridiculous doing that. But you're trying to do that to our indigenous languages. So there also has to be some work collectively about valuing indigenous languages. And so there could be some initiatives in the private sector, such as just saying, uh, we have certifications now for being a speaker of an Alaska Native language. So saying, if you're a certified speaker of an Alaska Native language, you are on this different pay scale. You just make more money. And it doesn't have to be a whole lot. But I think just historically, how much our languages have been deliberately devalued, we have to now sort of consciously increase that value of them um, in the ways that we perceive value today. And then I also I missed an opportunity to praise KTOO as a public media entity that's committed. Like their staff, are, they're learning the language of the place where they work. And I don't think there's another. Uh, public radio and then public television 
place that's, that's doing that as an entire entity. And they've been doing that for about two years now. Even I had a chance to teach Elmo how to say Gunachish and Tlingit. And it was wonderful. People were crying. One person said he's got to work on his L. I was like, hey, leave him alone. He's young. He's a three-year-old child. He'll get there. He'll get there. But you know, so I, I think things are coming along. And I think that things are shifting. And as we create, I think language nests are, are a really wonderful thing. I spent some time in Hawaii and uh, got to know a lot of people over there and said, what do we do? And at first they said, I don't want to tell you what to do. And I got to know them and I said, I think we'll do this. Like, that won't work. You know, so I, I think leaning on folks who have done that and who have created change and creating a network, um, I think a separate school district in Alaska, like an Alaska Native Language uh, Schools Consortium that's designed for Alaska Native Language Nests, language programs, and language schools. Because what we're trying to do is often quite a bit different than a daycare or a school, because English isn't going anywhere. Nothing's going to happen to English. But if we don't shift, we're going to go. There's probably 19 languages that are still going right now. And I think in about 10 years, it'll be down to maybe 10, unless we do something. Right. Yeah, if I may, we need to take a quick break. Okay. And then when we come back, okay. I'll definitely get okay. right to you, Rosita. We need to take one more short break. We're running out of time rapidly. It's too bad we didn't make this a two-hour program today. Uh, so we'll be back in just a moment as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its one million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust. Are you ready to start accelerating your child's future through education? The Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program is expanding its reach with new opportunities in Juneau and Southeast Alaska. With ANSEP's Acceleration Academy, high school students can earn college credit, save thousands of dollars in college costs, and experience fun, hands-on learning. ANSEP, it's a better way to learn. Learn more and enroll at ansep.net slash acceleration. This message sponsored by ANSEP. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are getting to the top of the hour quickly, too quickly, but you can still join us if you'd like, 1-800-478-8255 or email talk at alaskapublic.org. Rosita, please, you wanted to follow right. up. I just wanted to say, when, uh, when Hune says if everything goes right, he means money. I mean, we need funds to support these language programs. And I have to acknowledge, I think that the federal programs have been really marvelous. And I think it's a symbolic gesture that the state of Alaska did in terms of having that language committee. But yet it takes funds, you know, to support the language programs. And I will say that I think our school districts have been open to systemic change and have been wanting to integrate language and culture into the schools. But why do we want to do this? I mean, why do we want to preserve our languages? We know that they have value in them themselves. For us, it's you know, knowledge. It's, it's a whole systemic knowledge system. But for our children to learn our language and culture, what we are learning is that it improves academic success 
and it improves school retention. And those things are good for us as a society in terms that we are producing healthy you know, citizens that are going to be productive. So it has that value as well. And I just wanted to stress that. That's so important. I'm glad that you did mm -hmm. because that connection creates that sense of, of knowing who you are. And that, of course, contributes to people's better mental well-being and, and physical well-being. So it's a full spectrum um, support system. We have a question from the audience. Hello. Yes, this is for Dr. Worrell. And would you give your name? My name's Chris Benson, and I'm wondering more about the arts campus. Um, are there classes there now, and if they are, what, what are they, and are they short-term, and they long-term? Thanks. Uh, yes, we have already had started classes there. First of all, we finished the 360-degree uh, totem pole, the first totem pole of its kind in Alaska that's carved all the way around. That was carved, uh, finished at the campus. We've already had basket training classes there. Uh, we've had Tana training classes there. We've also had the uh, big box drum training. So it, it's not even formally open, but our people are so anxious to use it that they've run in there and pushed things aside, and we've already had these three classes, and that's just the beginning. Oh, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. We are going to go back to the caller line again. Lynette is in Anchorage. Hi, Lynette. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. And I'd like to give a shout out to Rosita um, for all the hard work with the celebration from the Sea Alaska Heritage Foundation. Also, I'd like to say that um, my father is also Thunderbird. And on my mother's side, my mother Harriet Belial is still alive wow. and she'll be attending, I will be attending. And my daughter, Mary, and my granddaughter, Madison, will be attending. So there will be four generations. And thank you very much for helping us um, succeed in learning our, some of our songs and our language because it was taken away from us years ago. My mother didn't know it. She was not taught it. Um, and then, of course, I didn't know it, so I couldn't pass it on. But this way, we have a little chance of being able to bring back and also engage in our culture in a very positive way. Thank you very much. And I'll be uh, looking forward to seeing a lot of family and friends. And I hope that Celebration 22 is going to be one to remember. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lynette. Thank you, Lynette. What a wonderful call. You can just hear her joy and excitement in her voice. And uh, I, I think there's going to be so much of that over the next few days. We only have a few minutes left, but uh, we, I want to back up to the totem pole that was recently erected on the cultural arts campus. It's different in that it's not one-sided, and it represents Tlingit, Haida, and Simshian tribes. How unusual is this, and why was it carved this way? Well, first of all, it was, it was to commemorate, commemorate Sea Alaska's 50th anniversary and which will be uh, later this month, we'll have our 50th anniversary. But we wanted to also um, show the unity of our people in our region, Clinkin and Ida Simpson, but we also wanted to show our cultural, core cultural values. Those core cultural values, I can't say them all in four minutes, <laughs> um, uh, contributed to our survival as native people. 
So it was really recognition of all of that, you know, uh, commemorated on this uh, totem pole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in our final minute here, Rosita, what is your vision for celebration in another 40 years? What do you want to be in place by then? Well, in another 40 years, all of our children will be speaking Tlingit, Haida, and Simsia. All right. And they will be as proud as ever. And also, we will be in a society that values diversity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that succinct and wonderful wish for all of us for the future. Hootenay, your thoughts about the next 40 years? Yeah, I would echo that. And I would like to see an awful lot of folks who are on the side that caused a lot of problems. For example, there were a lot of churches that were involved with suppressing languages, encouraging people to burn down totem poles. So they should all chip in and sponsor a new totem pole. They should all come out and say something, say what we did was wrong. They should have scholarships for learning languages. And I think there's ways to account for things that were done in ways that are responsible and that show that we're good functioning adults and humans. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I know this is such a busy, busy time, and so I'm so appreciative that you did take the time to share with the whole state of Alaska. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guests, Rosita Whirl and Hootenay Lance Twitchell. Special thanks to the awesome crew at KTOO for hosting us during this busy time. Thanks to KTOO engineer Miko Wilson in Master Control, Kelly Birkinshaw, and audio engineer Will Mater. Our producer, Adlin Baxter, usually in Anchorage, but here with us today in Juneau also. And in Anchorage, thanks to audio engineer Tobin Shelby, on the phones, Kavitha George, and summer intern Laura Fillion. Thanks to our great live audience for being here with us at KTOO, and thank you for listening. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. is a production of Alaska Public Media which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.